You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 45 is where we're going to be. And before we stand, though, I am, um, I'm going to give you just a, a bit of a rundown and remind you uh, about what has happened, what, what circumstances have taken place uh, to this point in time uh, to get us to Genesis 45. And then I, w- I want to give you the review first, and then we'll stand and read it. So the thought flow is just right, right along with the way that the text reads. Uh, if you'll remember, then Joseph's brothers uh, have come back the second time to get food. And we, we looked at that last week. There's a terrible famine and Joseph is in charge of collecting and distributing the food both before and during the famine. That's his job. He is there. Uh, and you know the story. Many of you know it already that God gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And Pharaoh had these dreams that Joseph interpreted. And it became clear in the interpretation that there was going to be seven years of, fam- of good abundance followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph's brothers live in Canaan, but even Canaan was affected by the famine. So they come the first time to get food because Egypt's the only place with food. And that's when Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. It had been 22 years since these same brothers. I mean, imagine if you don't know the story, then just imagine then these brothers sold Joseph, their brother they sold into slavery 22 years before this they were jealous of Joseph he was their father Jacob's favorite son and they hated him so much that one day out in the field they sold him to some Ishmaelites as a slave can you imagine I mean that that was a terrible event in the life of Joseph and and one of the worst moments in the Bible in my opinion so but those same brothers that sold him into slavery they show up in Egypt looking for food and he knows who they are but they don't know who he is. And after treating them pretty, pretty badly or roughly, the Bible says, then he sends them home with food, but he also fills their sacks back with the money they bought to pay for the food. And, and he says, though, don't come back without, our, without your youngest brother, Benjamin. So he sends them on their way with their money, which they don't find until they're on the trip. And now they're thinking, great, if we go back, he's going to accuse us of being thieves. That, that we didn't pay for the food that we took. And so after a few months and a, and a longer story that we won't get into the details of, they need more food. The famine is still real. So they go to their father, Jacob, who's been hesitant to send Benjamin, his now favorite son. Uh, he's been hesitant to send Benjamin back with them. And he finally agrees. And so when they return to Egypt for the second time to get food, Joseph opens up his home to them. He has them into his home. He feeds them a lunch, and they're afraid. They think Joseph is going to say, well, the last time you were here, you didn't pay for your food. You took the money back with you. And yet Joseph is gracious. He's a good host. He treats them well, and he gives Benjamin five times as much food as the rest of them. Benjamin was the only one that wasn't involved in him being sold as a slave 22 years before. So he gives them... He, he, he tests them. He wants to see if he gives Benjamin, which is the favorite son, if he gives Benjamin five times as much food 
as anybody else if his brothers are going to respond poorly and they don't respond poorly. And he's thankful because it seems like the brothers have changed. But he wants to give them one more test. And the test is what we looked at last week in chapter 44. They've gotten the food the second time. And he's going to send them away. But this time he fills their money with their sacks with money one more time. But this time he takes that silver cup, his silver cup, and he puts it in the, in the sack of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And the brothers leave and then he sends his servants not long down the road. He sends his servants to chase after the brothers and they catch up and they say, why have you done this to our master? He's treated you so well and yet you stole from him. And the brothers say, we've not stolen anything. We're innocent. Even Benjamin, he says, I'm innocent. He doesn't know the cup is in the sack. So they go exploring. They look through all of the brothers' uh, stuff and they find it that sure enough, they find it in the sack of Benjamin. And at this point, you would, Joseph is waiting to see their response. Because the last time the favorite brother, which was Joseph, the last time he was in trouble, they left him in a pit. This time, when the favorite son is in trouble, they don't leave him by himself. This time they turn around and they go right back to Egypt with Benjamin. And they go up to Joseph and they say, listen, we're all guilty. This is a change. He said, we're all guilty. They're in there for 22 years, they've had a heavy conscience weighing on them. They know that they're guilty. In their minds, probably everything bad that happens to them, they assume it's because they sold their brother into slavery. Judah goes before Joseph and he says, listen, I know that, that Benjamin, uh, it, it was found in Benjamin's stuff. He says, but we're all guilty. He says, and listen, I will stay in Benjamin's place. I will take his place. By the way, what a picture of, of Judah's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ, who went and, and, and said, I will go in their place to the cross. I will die for sinners. So Judah then intercedes for his brother. And it's at this point that Joseph knows his brothers are different. They're not the same as they used to be. And that's where we get, then get to Genesis 45. And I'd like to ask you to stand as we read this passage in honor of the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word this morning. We'll read part of this chapter and then I'll summarize the second half just so you understand what's happening. Genesis chapter 45 verse 1. It says in verse 1, Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren, naturally, his brethren could not answer him. For they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves. Can you imagine saying those words? That ye sold me thither, er, hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. 
For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall, there shall neither be uh, earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. I love those words. It was not you that sent me hither. But God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh. I have influence with Pharaoh, the Lord of, a Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, he go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children and thy children's children, and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee. For yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. He wants them to identify him. He wants them to know this is really me. They don't believe it, but he wants them to know. Verse 13, and ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that ye have seen. And ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. They could finally say something. We get to the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read it all. But Pharaoh hears about this and he says, bring your family. Go get your father. Bring your whole family. We'll take care of them. They can come to Egypt and live here and have all their needs met. He sends wagons. He sends clothes. He sends uh, more stuff to Benjamin than any of the other brothers God. And, and, and yet they're still happy that, that all of their needs are going to be met. Uh, through Joseph and look down at verse 25 and they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him saying Joseph is yet alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt and Jacob's heart fainted for he believed them not I'm not sure I could believe him and they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph my son is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. I mean, we've been waiting for this moment for a long time, haven't we? Joseph's been waiting for this moment for a long time. I mean, this is not an easy thing for the brothers because you have to think they would, Joseph, Jacob said, how did this happen? And Joseph's brothers would have had to say, well, dad, here's what happened. And yet what we see here is God doing an impossible work. See, here's the, the thought I want you to have today. And I just, I want to encourage you with this today that God can produce good when all we see is bad. Right. See, we all face seasons of life, they're, they're just bad. And they're, I'm going to call it today worst case scenarios. 
Uh, we did a men's events one time on the life of Joseph. We called it one worst case scenarios, and I'm going to use that today because worst case scenarios, they make you feel hopeless, they make you feel helpless, they make you think there's no possible way for good to come out of this. But you must remember in those seasons that God has the ability to take what seems only bad and produce something good. And I, I want to try to make that case to you today because Joseph here gives us a wonderful example of what happens when we choose to see the good and not just the bad. And I'm telling you, if Joseph had thrown in the towel, he would have missed out on all the good that God had for him. Amen. See, when, there are times that God wants to take this bad situation and make it good. But there are two words, two words we have to be willing to say. You know what they are? But God. But God. Father, we need your help. I need your help. Help my voice and my strength today. And just use this to make a difference as it's already made in my life. Lord, I love you. I need you. Bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I became aware of an exercise recently that a public speaker was giving. I actually read this on a blog, I think it's in a book um, that, that it was first talked about, but um, it was this exercise that this, this speaker who was public speaking and, and talking to a group of people, um, he had them go through this exercise to, to, uh, to make some connections we don't normally make. So he had them then take a piece of paper and fold it in half, and then along the top of the paper, he had them write the worst things that have ever happened to me. And then halfway down, right under the crease, the best things that have ever happened to me. And, and all of us could do this, and you could do it. Don't do it this morning. Maybe do it sometime when you have a chance. But the worst things that have happened to me, and then you take the time to think about all the worst things that have happened to you in your life. And, and if, we, if we could take some time today to hear those things, we'd probably be blown away by some of the difficulties people have faced in this room. There's been a lot of things in life that you might call the worst things that have happened to me. Uh, and then you would go down to the bottom and say, the best things that have happened to me, and list those things out too. And I hope that you're of the mind that this list would be longer than this list. Now, sometimes you may be in a certain season of life where this list, the worst things, is longer than this list. But for the most part, as God's people, if you're a child of God this morning, your list of the best things is probably fairly long too. I hope so. But one of the things that the speaker was trying to get them to do was understand how often there's a connection between this category and this category. Yeah. And how, what, he, what he tried to get them to do was to say, okay, look at the worst things in life. Now read the, the best things that have happened in your life. And in your mind or maybe with an arrow, draw a connection between the two. Because I think we'd be surprised sometimes at how often that in our life, the worst things that have happened to us actually can result in some of the best things that have happened to us. I mean, just think about it. I'm just giving you scenarios. I was talking to Brother Keith. Keith walked this morning, and he was telling me that a while back, a big tree fell on their fence. Now, which category would that go under? Worst things or best things? Thank you. I'm, yeah, that was an easy one, okay? This was a softball. Thank you for hitting that. The worst things. Well, I was talking to him this morning, and and because they have insurance, which is a good thing to have if you have a house, because they have insurance, the insurance company said, uh, you know, we'll give you this amount of money for the fence. 
and uh, they were able to buy the materials that somebody set the post. They put most of the panels up themselves. And he told me this morning, he says, we wanted to get a new fence anyway. And I'm thinking, hey, that's a good illustration for me this morning. Because, well, yeah, what would have been among the worst things that have happened to them turned out to be a best thing. And you, I mean, I don't know that, I know that's silly, but maybe this has happened to you. Have you ever been let go of a job or a job comes to an end and you think this is the worst thing that can happen and yet you go find a job and it's a way better job than the one you had? Or, or maybe in your life you've had, had to uproot your family and move and you think this is the worst thing that can happen and yet you get to the new place and that church is exactly what you needed or that neighborhood or that house was just what you prayed for and you realize the situation you left was worse than the situation you got. The worst turned into something good. Amen. Or maybe in your life you've had a health, a health scare maybe. And I've known people that do this. They go in because they have a health need and they get tested. And in and, and getting tested for the first need, they find out they have an even greater need that would have gone undetected if they had not gone to the doctor. And that worst case scenario turns out into something good because God allowed them to find out something they needed to find out. I had a friend who got jumped in college and beat up very badly and he went to the doctor, the emergency room and while they were taking scans and doing x-rays, they found a tumor on his throat, a cancerous tumor that they wouldn't have found until later if he hadn't gone in. And so the getting beat up turned into one of the best things that happened to him. Who could say that? I'm telling you, you, we might think that this stuff is not the, this stuff doesn't happen in our lives, but if you're honest and you're thinking about the situations in your, your life, there are probably more of these connections than we realize. Now, I do want to be balanced because there may be some of you here this morning and your worst case scenario has just happened. And you don't have a lot of time to think about there's not a big space and in your mind in your life you're thinking the worst case scenario that I'm dealing with I don't see how something good can come from it and I understand that uh, because everyone we have this gap this this time frame where it's hard to make the connection but but this exercise would still be good for you because you could see all the other times in your life that God has turned something a worst case scenario into something that ended up being a best case scenario in your life. And this may be exactly the time that you need to be reminded of that. I think about how God has done this in, in the lives of his people over and over. I mean, Jacob, think about Jacob. Jacob deceived his parents, he deceived his father, and, and his brother Esau wanted to kill him. We looked through his life and walked through it in this, chat, in this book of Genesis. And Jacob had to leave his home, and he walked away from home with the staff, that's it. And he walked all the way up to Uncle Laban's house. I mean, it's, I mean miles, hundreds of miles on this journey. And don't you think those, those months, the couple months it took him to get there, don't you think the whole time he's thinking, this is the worst case scenario. I can't imagine anything being worse. But guess who the first person he met when he got to Uncle Laban's house was? Rachel, the love of his life. God can produce something good when all we see is bad. 
I think about Jochebed, which is Moses' mother. And, and, he, and the Pharaoh, a few hundred years after our story today, the Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill all the little boys, the Israelite boys that are born. I'm going to kill every one of them because the children of Israel were expanding and multiplying. And they, you know, Father Abraham had many sons. You know, that song was happening and you just want that song to end. So, you know, he says, I'm going to put an end to this. I'm going to take the life of all the young males born to the children of Israel. And he issues this edict and, and they start to take the lives of the young children. And Moses is born and he's a beautiful baby and she doesn't want her son to die. So she puts him in a basket and sends him out on the river. And you know what? That's a worst case scenario. Most babies, most of us wouldn't survive floating on a river. But that baby was picked up by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter fell in love with that baby. And then Pharaoh's daughter sent for a nurse. And guess who got to be the nurse and got to nurse that, that boy uh, for the first few years of his life? His own mother, Jochebed. And she planted seeds of godliness. And that boy would grow up to, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery. What was the worst case scenario ended up being the best thing. You've got all kinds of stories. I mean, you've got this, this giant in the valley, and he's looking out across the valley, and he's basically saying, uh, who's, who's, what man is going to come out and fight you? Send me a man. For 40 days, those soldiers cowered in fear until one day a shepherd boy walked into the camp, and he heard the words of Goliath, and when he heard the words of Goliath, it changed him, and he said, is nobody going to go fight? Is nobody going to go get, take care of this Philistine who's blaspheming our God? And he said, I'll go, and he took five stones, and he went out, and with the first tribe, he took down that giant, and it caused a great victory for the children of Israel. The worst case scenario turned into something great. I think about the New Testament. I mean, I think about the Mary, and she came up by the Holy Spirit. She ended up being pregnant in a supernatural way. And, and Joseph, her fiancé, um, who's betrothed to her, he looks at her and he says, this is a worst-case scenario. He puts her away. He doesn't see how anything good can come from it. But when that baby was born, it was the Son of God. And the Son of God then been prompted, initiated the plan of God for salvation to be brought to all of us. That day that Jesus as an adult was, was arrested at 33 years or so, arrested and tortured and crucified. His disciples sat and watched him. You know what they were thinking? This is a worst case scenario. What they didn't realize though is that his death was required for us to have eternal life. And a worst case scenario turned into a best case scenario for all of eternity. I'm telling you, if you'll stop and think, God is in the business of turning our worst case scenarios into best case scenarios. You probably have stories like this in your life. I remember when I was a teenager, I, I, uh, I had... I was 16 and about to start my junior year in, in high school and football season was about to start and, and I, had, I had played as a sophomore and done pretty well and in my mind I thought I'm going to have a way to start this year and I'm going to get to contribute this year and then I started having some health problems. I went to the doctor and, and the doctor ran tests and came back and said, Jason, you have cancer, 16 years old. 
Had to have surgery, football was out. Had to have another surgery that semester I spent at home with an in-home tutor. And in the middle of all of it, you won't believe this, in the middle of all of it, I, I, I had a girlfriend and she checked all the boxes. She was pretty. She was the one. I had cancer. She broke up with me. Kick a man while he's down. And you know what I thought? This is a worst case scenario. Nothing good can come from this. But it wasn't long after that that I went to visit my sister in college. And she picked me up with one of her friends from college. And that girl's name was Erin Stevens. And she checked way more boxes. Now, she checks that box a lot, but she checked a bunch of other boxes too. And you know, I think now, look back, and I think, okay, football, I mean, NFL was obviously in my future. God took that away. And then this girl who I thought I'd end up with her took that away. And you know what? He had something way better. I mean, I'm doing what I want to do and what I would want to do if I could choose to live my life over. I'm doing it right now. And I'm doing it with the person. If I could do it all over, I wouldn't pick anybody different. Look back on your life and consider the times that you thought this is a worst case scenario. Nothing good can come from this. There's no way that God can make anything good come from what's happening in my life right now. But I just want you to consider the fact you can say that and you can feel that and you can think that nothing good can come from that except that time after time and instance after instance and story after story even in our own lives proves otherwise. God can take what's the worst case scenario and he can turn it into something you never dreamed could ever come out of that situation. Massive disappointments opening the door for something great. I, listen, I love it when God reminds us that he can produce incredible, out of, incredible good out of terrible bad. He did it for Joseph. Think about Joseph's worst day. I mean, I would say his worst day was that day that his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him as a slave. I mean, that, that's worse than my worst day. Most of us, that's worse than our worst days. To have your brothers, your own blood, betray you and throw you into a pit, sell you as a slave, you get carried and probably have to walk the whole way to Egypt and you're sold to Potiphar's house and you do your best and Potiphar's wife falsely accuses you. Now you're thrown in prison for years and you're down in a dungeon doing your best and you try to help somebody and they forget about you. I mean, telling you, but he all went, think about how many nights Joseph thought about his worst day. Think about all the times he could have said, this is, this is, there's no way good can come from this. Think about all the nights, the long nights he spent sleepless, hearing the voices of his brothers, seeing the cruel look on their faces and thinking nothing good can come from this. Except in our text, we find that this time in their, in their lives, Joseph no longer sees that nothing good can come from this. He actually has the the, the opposite perspective because God has done a work in his life. And in our text, we get to this place where Joseph sees the change in his brothers and he has everybody leave the room and he's so emotional that he can hardly talk. He's not upset, he's just emotional. In verse 2, we're told, he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. They're in Joseph's house. But he's crying so loudly that those in Pharaoh's house 
call the police and, and issue a noise complaint because he's too loud. I mean, can you imagine crying that loudly? I'm sure their homes were more open. You could hear it. But he's that emotional. He's crying, and, and he doesn't, and the brothers are probably thinking, what's going on? And, and they're, they're wondering what's happening. And then in Hebrew, through the tears, they hear words they understand, and Joseph says, it's me, Joseph. Don't you think in that moment, I mean, they're speechless. They're in shock. They can't speak. I wouldn't be able to speak. I mean, if somebody that I had wronged is standing there and I'm not sure if they're upset or just emotional and they say it's me and they have the power to do whatever they want to me if they want, I'd be afraid too. It says they were troubled at his presence. And he, but he, he's not there to hurt them. He, he doesn't do that. Look what he says in, in verse 4. It says, and when they were, sorry, verse 4, and Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Listen, this is amazing. Uh, God, it's a very good picture of God in that when we've done our worst and we've messed up big time, God doesn't say, stay away. He says, come near. Uh, we're broken and we've done wrong and we're in shock, but God doesn't write us off just like Joseph didn't write his brothers off. He says, come near to me. I want you to see me up close. And Jason, Joseph is saying this. He's saying, it really is me. And then he says, you know, it's me, Joseph. It's the one that you sold into slavery into Egypt. Now, he doesn't say it like this. Yeah, it's me. It's the one you sold into Egypt. Uh. That's not, now that may be how some brothers would do it. But what Joseph is doing is he's giving them a detail that only they know about. It's Joseph, and you know it's me. I'm about to give you a detail. How do I know it's you? Well, you know it's me because you sold me into Egypt. Nobody knows that except his brothers. And, and they're the only ones they know. So he's not doing it to rub it in their face. He's letting them know it is me for real. Come near, look close, recognize the features as much as you can because it is me. This is a worst case scenario. And listen, many of us in this may have the next verse said off with your heads. Now, some of us, in our worst case scenarios, we would love nothing more than revenge. But that's not what Joseph does. Look at verse 5. It says, now therefore be not grieved. Wow, don't feel bad. He says, nor angry with yourselves. Don't be mad at yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither be earing nor harvest. It's not done yet. We've got five more years. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. See, Joseph tells his brothers who've been plagued by a guilty conscience, I love what he does to reassure them. He says, don't be mad at yourselves because God has turned a worst case scenario into a best case scenario. God put me in a position 
to save lives. And if I hadn't been in Egypt, everyone would have starved, starved, and God's big plans for our family would have been washed away. The famine isn't over. There's still five years left. So God has me right here, right now, for a great deliverance. And then he says, and it wasn't you that, that sent me hither, it was God. And now he's not saying that God caused his brothers to commit this evil act. Because if you read the Bible, then you know God doesn't make people sin. He doesn't prompt us to do evil. He gives now. He does give us a free choice, and I'm thankful for that. And but men usually choose evil, and it's in our nature. But God gives man a free will. He doesn't cause the evil. But Joseph reminds his brothers that God, though through the evil, through the circumstances, he can turn it into something good. He can take a disaster and turn it into triumph. And he can take a broken life and make it beautiful. And, and he can work in an accident and draw us nearer to himself. He can work through a divorce, even though you can't see it right now. He can work in cancer, even though it may seem too big for you and he can work through a betrayal and transform us because that's the kind of stuff that God can do Amen. Joseph believed it with all his heart and you know what we say we say this shouldn't be possible it shouldn't be possible that somebody that was sold as a teenager by his own brothers could spend 13 years as a slave, 13 years as a prisoner, and come out with the right perspective. It shouldn't be possible that Joseph tells his brothers to go get Jacob and bring him back because I'm going to take care of you. It should not be possible for him to fall on his brothers and weep and cry and hug them and love them. The truth is, with man, this is impossible. But with God. See, God's involved in the story. And when God is working, even something as unlikely as this story can happen. And we say, how? And how is this literally possible? I mean, what did Joseph do to help himself not just survive, but thrive? See, we need this. And the reason we need this is because life is full of worst case scenarios. And, and, you, and that may not sound very encouraging today. Um, we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. And, and, and that doesn't sound very uplifting. And you think, I came to church to feel good. Well, I'm, I'm hate to, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I'm sure you've already learned this, though. Life is full of worst case scenarios. But here's the thing. Those without this truth have no hope when they come. And those who believe this truth can respond in such a way that it allows God to do the work that he wants to do. Amen. So you have a choice that you can either allow the worst case scenarios to break you or you can use those worst, allow God to use those worst case scenarios to turn them into something good. So I want to look at things, three truths that Joseph used to get through this worst case scenario. Number one, here's what you need to do. You must remember God's promises. You must remember God's promises. And you say, well, how do we know Joseph did that? Because what else would keep Joseph going through all those nights in a prison? See, when we first see Joseph in Genesis 37, it's God coming to him and giving him a dream and saying, I'm going to use you in a great way. From the very beginning of the story, God made great promises to Joseph. 
Joseph believed God. And I believe that day after day, Joseph was able to find the peace he needed in the middle of serious suffering because with all of his heart, he believed that God was going to keep his word. See, when the Lord revealed himself in those dreams that he would one day be in a position of authority, Joseph believed it. And it wasn't popular with his brothers, yet he still told him, told them it got him into trouble. But I believe in the pit, and when he was falsely accused, and when he was thrown into prison, and when he was forgotten, that Joseph continually reminded himself that God has made me some promises, and I just believe that God keeps his word. We have something more sure. Listen, this is even great. This is great. We have something more sure and more readable than dreams. And think about it. Joseph had the dreams and God said, wake up. Joseph had these dreams and God said, I'm talking about dreams, so I'm putting some of you to sleep. Sorry. Well, wake up. Okay. It's not your time to dream. Okay. So God gave Joseph dreams. But don't you think there were nights in prison that Joseph is thinking, am I remembering it right? Now, I'll wake up, I'll have a dream, and I'll wake up, and five minutes later, I'm like, ooh, i got to tell Aaron about that one. And then I'm like, wait, what was it? Well, these dreams that came to Joseph, don't you, want, don't you think there were times along the journey he thought, I don't think I'm remembering it right. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I, maybe I just didn't hear it right. You see, if we had to lean on our dreams to remind us what God's going to do, we, we might think the same thing. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. See, when you open this book, the words never change. Well, some versions change the word. I like the old King James. I think it's God's word for English-speaking people. I love it. So we read this book, and the words don't change. Now, sometimes I wish they would change. Like, honestly, I've read Genesis 37. I'm thinking, Lord, this time would you just let Joseph's brothers be nice? They never are, okay? It always happens. But, you know, God's word doesn't change. In other words, you can read it, and it'll be the same every day, and it will never change. So you have something more sure than dreams and experiences. You have God's word to remind you of what God says he's going to do. And the flower withereth, the grass fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And listen, you will never have any greater peace than when you open God's word and you read his promises. I want to encourage you, in the middle of your worst case scenario, in the middle of your suffering, don't forget God has given you relief. He's given you promises. And you say, well, I just don't, can't get over this. Well, claim the promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, I don't know what direction to go. Well, claim the promise that says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. You just go through God's word and say if I do what I'm supposed to do God has given me promises and he will keep his word and listen if you want to get through your worst case scenario you better have a very strong relationship with the word of God Amen. there's a lot of good books out there they can't do for you what God's word can do yeah. you got a lot of good friends out there they can't do for you what God's word can do 
And you may have some good resources and you may have a, a group that you meet with one night a week and all that stuff. That may be a help to you, but I'm telling you, nothing will help you. Nothing will give you the peace that you need in a worst case scenario than this book right here. So you need to open it and use it. And like Joseph, who reminded himself of his promises day after day, you need to remind yourself of God's promises. Second thing you've got to do in a worst case scenario is this, trust God's sovereignty. Trust God's sovereignty. See, I love what Joseph says in verse 8. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. And one of the most, one of the most important phrases in a Christian's vocabulary is those two words, folks. But God. They may be the two most important words to remember in a worst case scenario. But God. Not that God caused the evil, but that God never stopped working in spite of it. That's how sovereign he is. Understand, God gives man a free will. You must choose to be saved. You have to choose that. But let me just tell you this. In spite of what some may teach, even here in this community, uh, God, you, God chooses everybody. Not everybody chooses God. In other words, God died for the whole world. He doesn't want that any should perish. And we don't believe that it's limited to a certain group of people. God's sovereignty says, yes, I know who will be saved, but I'm going to open it to everybody. God's sovereignty, though, doesn't force man to make choices. Now, that doesn't mean we, we escape the consequences of our choices. God has laws in, in place that we can't escape. But God's sovereignty, in this case, is less about God forcing me and forcing people to do something as much as it is taking the mistakes and the choices that we make and making something good out of them. My kids, I, we have a game I like to play when they were little, and I would draw something. Or they would draw something and you have to then turn that into something else. So you draw a random shape and then you turn it into something creative and something you know, fun. And it was a fun game we used to play. And, then I, and, and, and really in many ways that's how God is with us. And that you know, we have something that happens in our life and it's just a shape. It's a worst case scenario. You don't see how anything good can come from it. But God who's an incredible artist... He comes along and those random shapes in our life that look like there's nothing good that can come out of it. He pulls, pulls them together in such a way that he creates a beautiful masterpiece. Amen. That's what God wants to do in your life. But God. God is at work. And this trial, listen, there's a trial in your life, but God is sovereign. And he's all powerful. And you can't do anything about the circumstances but God. And yeah, it's a bad diagnosis. But God is the great physician. I'm thankful for doctors. But God is in charge of my health. Is this a sad situation or a bad situation at work and you think, I can't change them, I can't do anything about that and I don't know how to fix it, but God can and he can make it happen and you just need to trust his sovereignty. See, we often say, well, but this or but that and we need to exchange all those phrases for this one and just say, but God. See, if God has done it before in your life, and as you look through this exercise, if God has done it before in your life, he can do it again. Listen, if you're a child of God, the greatest but God moment has already taken place in your life. 
I mean, you talk about worst case scenarios, we're all sinners, we're all broken, and that sin means that we deserve death. We couldn't earn our way to heaven if we wanted to. God is holy and we are not. And it was hopeless in ourselves. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, listen, if you by faith receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have eternal life. And if that but God has already taken place in your life for sinners like us, then there's no situation beyond but God. If you want to come out of suffering like Joseph, you have to be willing moment by moment sometimes to say, but God. The moment God stops working in our lives, listen, I'll give you a free pass. The moment that God stops working in our lives, that's when you can stop saying, but God. And I hope you caught that. Because God never stops working. And if you want to thrive, not just survive your worst case scenario, you need to remember God's promises and you must learn to say, but God. And third, this one's so important. We must exercise your power to choose. You have to exercise your power to choose. We've already talked about man's free will and how most choose evil, but it goes both ways. See, you can choose evil. You can choose to only see the bad. You can choose to respond poorly and you can throw in the towel if you want. You can choose to give up and you can choose to say there's no hope. Or you can choose to remember God's promises and you can choose to say, but God. See, you don't have the sovereignty to choose your consequences, but you do have the freedom to choose your responses. Joseph did it day after day. This day with his brothers. Now, if I, if, what if he'd have been angry? What if he'd have been in a bad mood? And it, I imagine it would have been extremely difficult to still choose to say, but God. Because it was in his power to exercise punishment and inflict revenge. But he chose to see his life through the lens of the good that God was doing. Instead of the bad that men wanted to do. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish prisoner of war in Nazi Germany in the death camps. And he lost his wife, he lost his parents, and he lost a brother in the gas chambers in the death camps. Viktor Frankl, you've read his biography or his story, it's powerful. I mean, at his lowest point, I mean, he's naked, tortured, on the floor, and there were the German, uh, the, the German guards were just torturous and and mean and in that moment it, 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 it he realized in the moment of his lowest time that he still had one freedom they couldn't take away and if you've ever read his story then you know and I want to say it like he said it he says this everything can be taken from a man but one thing the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. Listen, the, some of your worst case scenarios, I mean, I, they're, they're, they're bad. And they're difficult. And they're hard. And it seems hopeless. But I'm telling you this, just like Viktor Frankl and just like Joseph, 
And just like Jesus on the day he was crucified, you can either choose to only see the bad or you can make a choice to say, no, I will give God the opportunity to turn this into something good. That's a freedom that nobody can take away. The worst thing in Joseph's life turned into the best thing for his family. And Joseph offers them everything in the rest of the chapter. He says, come to the land, dwell here, bring your flocks, you'll have plenty to eat. We'll take care of you. And what seemed like a worst case scenario turned into God using the riches of Egypt to provide for Israel. I mean, this was a worst case scenario for everybody. But because Joseph chose to remember God's promises and to trust his sovereignty and to say, but God, then it saved the nation of Israel. And listen, I wonder what's at stake in some of our lives today. The worst case scenario is what God uh, or what Satan wants to use to take you down. But God is at work and you have to just continue to believe on a day by day basis in moment by moment. But God, but God, but God, I claim your promises. I see what you said and I believe it. And when, when it seems overwhelming and it seems like you don't have any way out, you must look to God's word and you must look to God and say, but God, because you don't know what's at stake if you throw in the towel in the middle of it. Amen. You don't know who's, who's depending on you. I mean, his family was preserved because of his choice. Who might be waiting for you to say the right thing and make the right choice? If, and, and if you throw in the towel, whatever hope they had is gone too. I'm just telling you, there's so much at stake and we don't even know what's at the end of it. And if you will simply choose, exercise your power to make the choice to look to God's word and trust his sovereignty, that he might turn what you're going through into something you could have never dreamed. Here's what you need. You need this truth. I can't change my suffering, but I can choose my response. I can't change my suffering, and I wish I could. There are times you're going through something, and you wish wish it was different. You'd do anything to change it. But you can't. But you can choose to respond in such a way that God still has the opportunity to use it for good. The greatest human freedom you have is to choose to remember God's promises and open his word. Trust his sovereignty and say, but God. Over and over and over. Sometimes moment by moment. Sometimes, I mean, certainly day by day. But God. But God. But God. As we read the Bible, it becomes clear, in my opinion, it becomes clear that we don't have a sanitized version of history. And by that, listen, by that I mean that God didn't clean up his word before he gave it to us. Now, we have a pure word of God. I'm not saying we don't have a pure word. I'm saying the stories in God's word, he didn't fix them all up so they were all edited. No, when we read God's word, it's not a pretty picture sometimes. And we've gone through passages and I'm like, Lord, I don't want to preach this. But it's there for a reason. 
and you go through these, these lives of these men and these women and you wish it was different, you wish it was cleaner, you wish they would do right. But understand this, if, if we got a book, the Bible, and all that was in it was like perfect people and God's working, then when it comes down to our lives, we think, well, God can't work in my life because I'm not like that. Because I don't live a sin-free life. And none of us live trouble-free lives. But see, when God's word, when we see God working in messy situations, what it does is it gives us hope that if he could do it for them, he can do it for me too. And if he could take somebody like David uh, who had an affair and murdered the husband of the woman he was with and still used him as a great king, then it gives me hope that he can look at me and say, I can use you too. Amen. If he can take a situation like Joseph's brothers, betraying their brother and selling him as a slave, uh, I mean, if he could turn this into something good, then f folks, then whatever we're facing, uh, it's not out of his reach. Right. And what it does is it gives us hope that if God can help them, he can help me too. And I don't know what situation you've come in this morning and how dirty and messy it might be, but I just want to tell you this. God can take the broken and he can make it beautiful. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Right now, maybe all you see is the top half. But if you'll... If you'll Remember God's promises and trust God's sovereignty and say, but God, long enough, endure. Someday you're going to be able to draw a line from this one down to something down here that you never saw coming. But we have to in the days and in the moments learn to remember God's word and say, but God. What's your worst case scenario today? It seems hopeless, I know. But you have God's word and it may seem impossible, but God is sovereign. And the only missing element in most people's lives is this. They haven't exercised their power to choose. They're letting their circumstance determine their direction rather than saying, no, I choose to see what God might do. So stop wallowing in the trouble. Claim the promises of God. Choose to look up and say, as many times as you need. Say, but God. But God. It's another long night, but God. It's another bad encounter, but God. It's another failure, but God. It's more trouble, it's more heartache. It's another bad diagnosis, but God. We need to be people that exercise his power. And choose to say, but God. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.